Hello and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, good things can happen. But we also have to be careful because there's a lot to unpack here. I'm Mara Davis. I am your co-host. I just got back from a couple of vacations, but now I'm here to stay and I am ready to learn more about how we're going to get educated on what's happening here. Yeah, and I'm uh, Jen Jordan, and I am back too. And we have got a lot to cover today, and we're going to have a lot to cover in the next few months because, man, there is some crazy stuff happening in this state. It's really crazy. You know, we always say when you vote, good things happen, but but there's there's so much to unpack. So let's start with the fun stuff. You just got back from Washington, D.C. How was that? It was amazing. We went up there, uh, took the family, and um, visited some colleges on the way. But then also uh, the point of going up there was specifically to push, you know, our elected representatives and senators at the federal level to adopt federal legislation to s- basically protect voting rights um, since we have states like Georgia passing state-based laws that are going to make it harder to vote and, you know, cause some significant, significant trouble going forward if we don't get some protections in place. What do you say to somebody who would say uh, everything that that uh, the Georgia Democrats, the Texas Democrats were doing, it was just a performance. You're not governing. It's all a show. And what a waste of time in showboating there. Look, I don't know about the Texas Democrats necessarily, but what I can tell you is that the laws that are being passed in Texas and in Georgia are bad for voters and are bad for democracy. And If the only thing we can do as members of the minority party is to get that message out and to communicate that to more people and also to push our representatives at the federal level and to to educate them as to the implications, then that's not showboating. That's exactly what we were elected to do. Okay, well, that's good. Just want to get another perspective of what some people think that that may look like. Um, there's always a lot of critique when it comes to that. And certainly election laws are really, really front and center. I mean, it's just kind of picking up steam. I, I, there's a article in The New Yorker this past week uh, written by Jane Mayer talking about dark money that's going into the big lie. Now, it mostly focuses on Arizona and Maricopa County, but it definitely seeps in to Georgia, too. And she referenced Rick Hassan, who is a, a election lawyer who is really, really freaked out by takeovers of, of like what they're talking about Fulton County. And let's take a listen to him. Well, I never expected to say I'd be scared shitless on CNN, but that's how I feel. I think that we dodged a bullet in 2020, but the way things are lining up, I'm very concerned about our elections going forward, especially 2024 and the possibility that we're not going to have an election where the results, the official results reflect what voters actually want. And specifically, that is a specific concern that I'd like you to talk a little bit more about. Why is it you're so concerned that people might just throw out legitimate results or have the power to? Well, you know, if you look at the kinds of arguments that Donald Trump was making, uh, they were not just the false claims of voter fraud, the big lie that's gotten so much attention. He has asked um, for state legislatures to override the will of the people. You remember he wanted to have uh, legislatures in Georgia, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Arizona, change the election results. And he had, you may remember, uh, I think it was 167 members of Congress who voted along with him when they were counting the Electoral College votes. Now things are lining up. Those who had 
the courage to stand up to Trump, people like Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, those people have been pushed out or pushed to the side or censured by Republicans, and they're being replaced by people and being replaced with laws that are going to make it easier to subvert the will of the people if that's what the political pressure puts on them to make them do. You know, I think people look at that and say, in the words of Sinclair Lewis, you know, it can't happen here. But, but it can. I, mean, I don't think people understand how out of date our federal election laws are, or frankly, the Constitution is in terms of presidential elections, at least. But these states, they can get away with it, right? Well, you know, the Constitution itself says that states can state legislatures can literally take away the power of voters to choose the president and they can choose the president themselves. Uh, so you could have a state pass a law that says we're not going to have an election for president. That's right there in Article 2. Now, I think that would be politically unpopular, but this is kind of getting the same way in the back door where there's been, at least in Arizona, a proposal that if the state legislature doesn't agree that the election was run fairly, it could throw out the election results and it could uh, decide for itself which uh, elect which candidate is going to get the state's electors. It hasn't happened yet, but the fact that this is even on the table shows you the kind of really anti-small-D Democratic movement that we're seeing in many parts of the country. And this should scare everyone. Yeah, he's right. I mean, look, we, we just had the uh, president pro tem of the state Senate send a letter um, with all of these other uh, Republican state senators signing on, triggering the process under this new law they just passed to basically take over Fulton County elections. People should be really, really concerned. And, and, let's, and let's back up a little bit because there hasn't even been another election to take place. So what are they talking about then? They're talking about 2020. They're talking about November. And so it's one of those things where this really isn't, it shouldn't be about politics or partisanship. It really should be about the right to vote and making sure that that's secure. And if you have partisans that are able to come in and take over local election boards and, and take over the decisions in terms of, of what vote counts or what doesn't or who can vote and who can't, then you're going to have a situation, like Rick said, that, you know, you may have election results that don't actually reflect the will of the people. And that was an interview with John Berman on CNN. Um, what Jane Mayer was saying in New Yorker as far as the dark money coming in, and I know that's a problem in Georgia, too, where people can accept uh, from these big packs, they're just taking all this money and politicians are just going with it. I mean, Brian Kemp, our, the governor of Georgia, seems to feel that a Fulton County takeover uh, is inevitable and, and it should happen. He's being interviewed and talking about it. Well, it's ridiculous of what Fulton County's been doing. And if you look over the years, they've had a history of doing that. If you look at my record when I was Secretary of State, uh, you know, we imposed the largest fine in the history of the state on Fulton County because of elections and improprieties. You know, gosh, I think it's been five or six years ago now that we did that. And I think that's why people like me are so frustrated at Fulton County that they can't figure out how to get this right, which is why I'm supporting the legislative leaders in the county that have asked for a review of Fulton County elections by the State Elections Board. Uh, I came out in support of those actions and that is uh, under my understanding is underway and we'll, we'll see what that brings us. And I think it's very warranted that that happened. So what was interesting about what he said is this, 
this dude was the Secretary of State for a long time. And they're talking about Fulton County as if, you know, this has just been bad and rotten for forever. When the people who who would have been kind of supervising or kind of at the state level who could go in and try to fix things are the governor, (laughs) the sitting governor right now, and then, of course, the secretary of state. So all this is, is you want to talk about political theater? That's what this is. And this is just about somehow giving the base what they want or need because they're so scared of getting a primary challenger. Well, let's talk about the election in 2022, because this week some waves were made with Stacey Abrams announcing that she was going on a book tour. And I've been hearing two camps about this, Jen. One is that she is um, not running. That Look, she's doing a concert tour. And the other is, oh, she's definitely running. It puts the Democrats in a very awkward spot right now. Well, I don't think she's ever indicated that she's not running. I mean, this is what Republicans are really pushing out there because they want there to be some consternation. You know, they, they want to kind of stir up some trouble. But let's be clear, Stacey Abrams doesn't owe anyone anything in terms of the timeline of when and if she announces that she's going to run for governor. She doesn't have to. What are the two things you need to do? You need name ID and you need money, right? Stacey Abrams has plenty of both. I mean, she does. So the whole idea that that she needs to start in August, you know, and not push some of the initiatives she's working on and not do some of the the projects that that she's really been working on and pushing for a long time just to to make Republicans feel better. Yeah, (laughs) she doesn't really owe anybody that. Speaking of that, here's a quote from Eric Erickson. And he has a sub stack where he writes in an editorial piece. And he says, quote, no one privately believes Georgia was stolen, but a lot of the base does, and they want payback. Trump's involvement could hand Georgia to Stacey Abrams and keep Warnock in place, end quote. Look, it is all about the base right now. And I think we saw that letter with respect to triggering the Fulton County takeover. It's amazing. It came right after Donald Trump came out against the president pro tem of the Senate, Butch Miller and said he, he wasn't going to support him. So what is Senator Miller got to do? He's got to turn around and he's got to show the base voters, you know, just how Trumpy he is, you know, by triggering something like taking over the, the election board in Fulton County. I mean, that is just nuts. You know him? I definitely do. and He's a very nice person. Does that hard? You know him, you work with him. I'm sure you've seen him, you know, in the lunchroom or whatever at the Capitol. And then something like this crosses your desk. And what's that? What is that like? Look, I think it was what Erickson said. Uh, private conversations that I've had with various Republican senators. Nobody thinks that anything wrong happened with the elections. Was there some some stuff that you want to do better? Sure. But what they're doing is they're pushing it out there because it helps them politically. And it's specifically with certain electeds who have higher ambitions. They're the ones that are really amplifying this message. And it is incredibly, incredibly irresponsible. And do you pull that person aside? I mean, you're going to have to go back into session. Don't you have a special session coming up? Yeah, for redistricting, which is also going to be difficult. But But do you pull him aside like you're on the way to the bathroom? You're like, listen, Butch. 
Like, well, why, uh, why are you so crazy? You what's, know, uh, what's going on here? So we'll, we'll put Senator Miller aside, but, but I can tell you <laughs> that I have had conversations with certain Republican senators, and the first thing out of their mouth was, I'm really not that crazy. I mean, when you have to start a conversation that way, then you at least have the wherewithal to understand that what you're doing is, is really wrong. Wow. That's, that's something. That's, that's a, that's, I guess, I guess you have to live with yourself. Um, you said something really interesting before we started the podcast. We, you, we, we, you just got back from Washington, D.C. I did. I did. And you were remarking about the Capitol, being at the Capitol and what that felt like and seeing that. Can you just talk about that again? Yeah, it was interesting. I don't think I've been to the Capitol in years. I mean, years and years. And so I, my son and I were just walking around the grounds because, by the way, it's closed still because of the security issues from the January 6th insurrection. And it really just kind of drove home to me just how awful January 6th was and how scary and how close we came to really, you know, losing, losing our country. And it was almost like as I was walking around and I was seeing a wall or an entryway, it was like the, the back of my mind, the video that I'd seen at the time was was playing. And it, it's just incredible. It's just incredible what happened. And there is no way that anybody can tell me that that, that wasn't coordinated or pre-planned or something because it was just it was just too big. It's too much. Well, I wanted to bring that up because there's so many uh, like Senator Miller, like Senator Leffler, like Senator Perdue. So many of these Georgia politicians, I went back and looked at their Twitter feeds from November and there was back the blue, back the blue, back the blue. And when those officers testified, the four of those officers which was really moving, especially Officer Fanon, where there's an article about him in Time magazine that's really, really moving. He's been sort of the face of this whole movement. Kind of a little crush on him, too. It's kind of cute. Give well, it to him. yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay. Um, all right. That may be inappropriate, but, uh, but, but I'm owning it. You know, it's really unbelievable. There's been no back the blue in the January 6th at all. Well, I think it's back the blue if it's politically expedient to you. I mean, these are working men and women whose very job at the Capitol is to protect elected officials and really to protect our key democratic institution. And the fact that that's exactly what they did, you know, and now there aren't folks that are standing up for them and, and fighting for them and, and actually trying to get to the truth of what happened. You know, to say it's disappointing is really is really kind of minimizing what's happening. Well, I wanted to bring that up because that's really the crux of the big lie, right? I mean, here it was all, you know, the big lie basically started before the election even happened. And then it was everything that's coming out about trying to meddle with the Department of Justice, trying to meddle with the Secretary of State here in Georgia, trying to meddle with the governor and all everything that comes afterwards. 
Now you're seeing a lot more voting groups getting involved. Uh, I was just reading about Arthur Blank and sports teams and their initiatives with Rock the Vote and getting uh, celebrities, sports teams. They're going into Atlanta public schools to encourage voter registration. At the same time, we're hearing about voter purges. Um, But what does this all mean? I mean, are we fatigued by it? Do the Democrats have a strategy? Is this going to be enough? You know, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you that folks are working at every level and trying to come from every different direction, whether we're talking about messaging and communicating, um, voter education, um, voter registration, whatever it is, folks are really working hard. I mean, litigating these cases in the court system. I don't think that there's one single thing that's going to be enough. And, you know, a lot of the organizers on the Democratic side have said we cannot out-organize these laws that are specifically intended to disenfranchise certain voters. And they're right. I mean, but we have to organize. We have to educate. We have to fight like heck in the courts because it is going to make a difference at the end of the day. And we, you know, we'll end this segment like we began in terms of Rick Hassan. We do not need to be in a situation where we get election results that do not reflect the will of the people. And that you've said it all. Let's get to our guest. So our guest today is Terry Anulowitz, and she's a representative for Georgia House District 42. She is an activist and very chatty on Twitter, which is what inspired us to have uh, her on as a guest, but she represents parts of Smyrna and Marietta and parts of unincorporated Cobb County and serves on the House Transportation Code Vision and Intragovernmental Coordination Committees. That's a lot. Hi, Terry. Hi, Mara. Hi, Jen. Hey. So Terry represents or her district actually is part of my district, too. So we get to see each other a lot. Yes, almost all of my district, but for one little part is in SD6. Yeah, I think maybe just one precinct. So, you know, that poor little precinct. I know. know. So SD6 and 42. And do you guys work together on things or how does that go? Yeah, especially uh, local legislation and stuff specifically uh, like that's Cobb County based things, you really do want to work with the other legislators that represent the areas that you represent. I mean, it just it just helps because even from a legislative standpoint, it has to go through both houses, right? It has to go through the House and the Senate. So you have to make sure that, that you have allies. As a senator, having allies in the House is really, really important. That's right, because any issue in my district is entirely in Cobb County. I don't have any of Fulton or City of Atlanta. So I work with Jen on all the Cobb issues and any issue that impacts my district is going to impact Jen's district, too. And so we can get a lot more done if we are collaborating and if we're sort of teaming up and maybe even good cop, bad copping. And you guys like each other. We do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Jen's my favorite. <laughs> Terry's my favorite. Me, too. OK, so, Terry, I saw this on Twitter and I absolutely love this and I want to come out of the gate with us. You know, there's been so much talk about vaccines and mask mandates and covid and it, it, it you know, it was the hot vac summer and now it's the hot mask summer. And, and now it's the hot mess summer. Uh, yeah, hot mess summer. <laughs> exactly. 
And, you know, so many people are are crying about their freedom and you put out this great tweet thread about freedom and rules. So can we talk about what what you said and what inspired you to write this whole thing? Yes. So there is a senator, so one of Jen's colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle who is running, well, is going to announce soon, I guess, that he's going to be running for lieutenant governor. He has been very outspoken with the whole stop the steal, you know, all of those shenanigans, perpetuating the big lie. And I think that a lot of Republican politicians realize that one of the ways that they can rally their base now is the politics of masking, which we know is absurd, right? Like we know that masking is demonstrably proven over and over again with multiple scientific studies to help reduce the spread of COVID-19. But these folks just, they just don't want it to be true, right? They don't want parents to have to mask their kids. They don't want anybody to have to wear a mask. So he's pushing Governor Kemp to have a, basically like a no mandate mandate, a mandate saying that you can't, do mask mandates. And he wrote a letter to the governor detailing that his, his views that, you know, parents are the ones who should be trusted to make the best decisions for their children. And this whole pandemic, it's real easy to draw an analogy between wearing a mask to protect your neighbor, to protect yourself, to other things that we do to protect ourselves and protect our neighbors. Like we don't drive drunk, right? Or you shouldn't. That, that's illegal. And it should be because it's, it's very dangerous. You know, we have to wear seatbelts. We have to restrain our children in car seats. They can't just bop around the back of the car. And so I drew that analogy. I was like, you know, look, this is parents do things all the time that their kids might not want to do, but we do them because it's the it's in their best interest. And we do them because it's in the best interest of society. You know, we, we talk about that social contract. And so then I got a little salty and said something about, you know, if, if children, you know, because that here's the thing too, right? We've all run into lots and lots and lots of kids who wear masks without incident, just like we can get kids to wear shoes and wear pants and wear shirts and wear sunscreen and, and wear and underwear. W- I mean, there's some basic pants. things, oh, right? Yes. Like <laughs> glasses, like all the, all the horrible things as parents, we make our children do so that they are, you know, protected from things that want to hurt them, like the sun or nails in the road, you know, all those things we do. They, you know, we do these things all the time. And we, we recognize generally as a society that, yeah, you got to strap your kid in a car seat. So this whole, I don't even know what to call it. It's, it's, it's like this, this whole manufactured drama about masks is, is absurd. And I wanted to, what I hoped to do, and what I think I did was shine a light on the absolute absurdity of Burt Jones's arguments about parents knowing what's best for their kids. Well, and, and one of the things in terms of what Governor Kemp has come out and said is, you know, like, especially in terms of vaccinations and mandating vaccinations is that, you know, that's not the role of government. We don't mandate. We, you know, you can't tell people what to do. But that is exactly what laws are, right? Like laws are mandates with respect to behavior of what people can and cannot do in this state because we want to protect people. We want to protect the person who's the actor, but also we want to protect everybody else in the state. And so it's just kind of ridiculous that, you know, we, you have the governor of the state talking about, well, there's not really anything he can do. Yeah, the whole lead a horse to water really stuck in my craw because I feel like, 
you are actually the person who can not only lead the horse to water, but you can 100% make that horse drink. Uh, Yeah. And tell the horse specifically what to drink. I mean, these are the most powerful people in our state and they act like, you know, they're just dumbfounded. It's like, well, what are we going to do? What are we supposed to do? We don't have the power. I'm like, what in the world? It's like, this is the most powerful person in the state of Georgia. And and he's not willing to kind of come out and make a strong statement about vaccination just to protect the people that, you know, he governs. I mean, that's right. That's what I'm really vexed by also. Right. So he's out there talking about how, you know, people need to talk to people about getting vaccines. It's like you are literally standing behind a microphone. Well, right. And, right. And the whole thing is, it's not that you need to go get vaccinated. It is maybe you can pick up a phone and call your doctor or healthcare provider to have a conversation about vaccinations. It's like, how weak tea can you be? Well, see, my issue with that is when he did that was um, if anybody's tried to get a doctor on the phone at any time, even pre-COVID levels, if you've got uh, a sniffle or you don't feel well, you need a prescription. And for someone who doesn't go to a doctor regularly, it is not easy to get somebody on the phone to give you advice. And not have even health insurance. I mean, that's also it. That's exactly state. right. We have such high levels of, of uninsured rates that it's, it's just preposterous to, you know, like the strongest language you're going to use is maybe get your doctor on the phone. I mean, it, it, you know. No, and, and, and you know, I to his point, and I've I have gone way down the anti-vaccine rabbit hole the past several years. It is true that just telling people they need to get a vaccine is is not one of the most effective ways to convince them to go get a vaccine. But if you put actually, like, if you give people actionable steps, like you know, if you've got a doctor, call your doctor. If you've got a pharmacist, talk to your pharmacist. You know. Then maybe continue and say, you know, almost every single pharmacy in the state has access to the COVID-19 vaccine. You know, whether you're going to Publix or Walgreens or CVS or, you know, local pharmacies, you know, a lot of communities have, have their, their trusted local pharmacy. You know, talk to the person, talk to the same person you go to when you get antibiotics if your kid gets strep. You know, talk to the same person who you trust to give you advice when your child has you know, the croup or or hand, foot, and mouth disease, you know, all the things that you deal with. Talk to the person who you trust because chances are most people have somebody like that. You know, talk to the school nurse, talk to, you know, whoever it is that you have access to and, you know, put numbers out, staff people on a hotline. You know, we have the hotlines that people can call to to schedule their vaccines, you know, staff people put it out there, but, but make it real easy for that horse to drink its water. Well, in, in a public education campaign, I mean, you know, if you don't have access to a physician or to information or to anyone who works in the health field, I mean, we've done this a lot where there are public health campaigns where we are really trying to educate people so that we can battle the misinformation that they're getting in, in terms of social media. I mean, I don't I've heard a lot of of Republicans talk about that this is some kind of experimental gene therapy. You know, folks have indicated that the government is inserting something into you, some kind of chip, you know, if they get the vaccination. I mean, it is really the role of government in a nonpartisan, nonpolitical way to put out good 
information in terms of public health. And that is something absolutely that the Kemp administration could do. I have a question for you, as a, for both of you, actually. The governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, came out and said uh, when they had the mask mandate back in the spring, they're banning a mask mandate. And he is now coming out saying he regrets that. And that he would like to have, uh, I think they said they're going to do a special session to try and reverse that. Do we forgive him? Is, it would, is, you know, do we forgive people when they come around on things? So forgiveness, that's an interesting concept. Forgiveness is, yeah, that is. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I want elected officials learning from data, right? So the fact that we have the governor of Arkansas at least acknowledging, you know, Look, I thought this and, you know, so we made some some policy decisions based on that. Now I know that's not the case and I want to reverse course. Yeah, it, it, it's I, I would I would much prefer that than someone double down on bad information and bad policy just because they don't want to seem politically weak. That's exactly right. And I think that it's he is to be commended from looking at the data being like, okay, we see now that states that did have mask mandates seem to be doing a little bit better. So maybe we should change course. And that's so that's that gets back to the whole thing about this pandemic and trying to understand a an you know, an emerging illness, right? Like like we can't be anything but ten steps behind COVID nineteen as it continues to evolve, you know, as we have different variants, because we knew that we were going to have variants. You know, the Delta variant is such a different virus than the original virus we were dealing with. And one of the things that Governor Kemp said earlier this week that really bothered me was he talked about how, you know, how can the people trust the government? Because, you know, they keep, you know, like he said, you know, the CDC, they keep changing their information. Well, yeah, they keep changing their information because every day there are legions of scientists who are learning more about this disease and how this disease functions and how the variants function. So, of course, the guidance is going to change. I mean, I love that Michelle Alb on on Twitter, the analogy she used was the weather. Like, we don't call the the meteorologist a flip-flopper if they change the forecast. We're like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I guess they understand more about their modeling things and they, you know, the forecast is changing. This is not that different. I mean, the CDC and all of the other scientists working with this are dealing with a with Delta, are dealing with a different virus than what they were dealing with in 2019 and early 2020. It makes absolute sense that as we understand more about, you know, how the disease is, how the virus is aerosolized, how it's transmitted. You remember when people were wiping off their groceries? We know now we don't need to be doing that because, you know, contact, at least with the current variants, is not really how it's spread. We know that it is very airborne. We know that Delta is even more contagious than the original recipe that we were working with. And so that bothered me that Kemp would would accuse the CDC of almost being capricious in their guidance. Especially because it's right here in his home state. That's the thing, right? Like these are Georgians who are working their tails off. I have a dear friend, a constituent of both me and Jen, who spent months out of the past year deployed with the CDC, you know, trying to understand how this disease works and how this disease spreads and how we can best manage this. Like people make sacrifices. Georgians have made tremendous sacrifices to try to figure out how this disease works. And so to, so to say you know, or to imply that they're being capricious, I think is very irresponsible on his part. You had a moment where you had a dust up with some anti-vaxxers, with, with some legislation you were trying to pass. Can you tell us more about that? 
Absolutely. So in early 2020, how prescient of me. In early 2020, I had a piece of legislation, as I mentioned, which uh, which came from model legislation and policy that was approved and supported by the American Medical Association. And that would be, it was it's called mature minor consent. So in Georgia, minors who have reached the age of consent, consent meaning they are old enough in the state of Georgia legally to consent to have sex, not with a, someone over 18, of course, but between, you know, 16, 17 year olds, they can consent to have sex. And my logic is, well, if they can consent to have sex, they can for sure consent to get the measles vaccine, right? So, so we, we had this bill. It was very simple. The original version of the bill, and actually um, the chair of the House Health Committee, Sharon Cooper, signed on to the bill. A lot of different folks signed on to the bill because they're like, yes, this makes sense. The doctors support it. This will be great. You know, I talked to some folks in public health. They they. You know, I got very good feedback on the bill, dropped it forward, and immediately was hit with an onslaught of attacks from the, they call themselves, it's the medical freedom. There are different medical freedom organizations, and they are very organized, very sophisticated, and very well-funded. And this is not just in Georgia. This is nationwide. They, they had petitions and they came to the Capitol and they slammed members of the House Health Committee with emails. They can't, you know a dozen of them or so came to my office you know they set up camp in the in the north wing of the capitol right outside of the the um the medical station that is always set up during on session days at the capitol and they they, they were overwhelming to the point where some of the bill sponsors took their name off of the bill uh the bill did not go anywhere i'd actually changed the wording of the bill and again this was all in january february of 2020 i changed the wording it had listed all of the different vaccines that are required to attend public school in Georgia, like measles, mumps, rubella, you know, tetanus, pertussis, whooping cough, like all those, all those usual vaccines. And I changed that after consulting with some folks in public health to just read any vaccine is recommended by the Centers for Disease Control. (laughs) And then we had a pandemic a few weeks later and the bill really hasn't gone anywhere since then. Instead of being on the offensive we have discovered, not necessarily in Georgia, but in other states, especially in the South, you've had to go on the defensive. Ohio, not not the South, but kind of the South. In Ohio, the House, their House Health Committee actually gave hearings to some of these bills that would mess with vaccine mandates. And that's the thing, right? We went from having conversations about mature minors being able to get the measles vaccine without parental consent to having conversations where, you know, we're talking about fending off bills that would make it so you couldn't have any vaccine mandates in this, you know, like in the state of Ohio, they want to get rid of any vaccine mandates for, which would mean that like children's healthcare couldn't require that their employees get the pertussis vaccine or the flu vaccine, you know, all, all things that are like vaccine mandates are nothing new. Right. Measles, mumps, rubella, like we've, I mean, we, I've gotten them as a child and my children have gotten them. And I mean, we've really been able to eradicate some of the worst diseases, you know, that we've seen in and this you need planet. To, and you need to have the shots to get into school. I'm curious, Terry yes. and, and Jen, I feel like some of this anti-vaxxing movements and 
please forgive me because my brain goes right to pop culture, but I remember like the whole Jenny McCarthy autism is caused by vaccines. So it's not just people on the right who maybe feel there's political reasons. There's this kind of, you know, all natural organic. That whole movement is, is, it feels like what was a big part of the problem you had with this bill. So going back to what you said about Jenny McCarthy, I've actually cited her anti-vaccine activism as one of that. I mean, that's one of the things that sort of got me following the anti-vaccine movement. Like when my, you know, my oldest, Jen's oldest, oldest, Jenny McCarthy's oldest, they're all, they were all born within a few years of each other. And so like when Jen and I were making decisions about, you know, vaccines and talking about those things with our pediatrician, I don't know about you, Jen, but it was everywhere. Like any baby center group, anybody was in any kind of parenting group, like, oh, are you going to do a delayed vaccine schedule? Will you do this? Will you do that? I was like, oh, I'm just going to vaccinate my kid because I don't want him to get polio. But they, um, but all of this, this rhetoric about well, should you? Because you know, it's just like planting that seed of doubt. Well, are you sure? Are you sure this is safe? The autism thing, that all dates back to around that time because that is when this doctor, he's not a doctor anymore, but a, a British at the time, he was a, a doctor in Britain, and I'm Andrew Wakefield. And he was trying to get approval for this a measles vaccine that he had invented himself. And one of the things he did to try to get support for that vaccine that he developed was to one, have this study with a sample size of it was fewer than a dozen children to say that that their MMR is linked them to autism. That study was in the Lancet. It was subsequently retracted. He, you know, was again lost his medical license. He no longer practices medicine, but he has built a tremendous empire. And what you mentioned, Mara, about like you know, organic food. Sometimes people talk about essential oils. That gets to the root of what I see as basically the foundation of the anti-vaccine movement. And that is that it is all kind of a massive grift. And there are lots of grifts, right? There's all kinds of, you know, pyramid schemes or, you know, any, any kind of grift people want to talk about, but not all of them have major public health consequences. The problem is this one does. And so you've got people sort of at the head of this movement who are making massive amounts of money. And that's, you know, grifters are going to grift. But the problem is that 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 this strategy, sort of the roots of this disinformation have led to now the crisis that we have with profound levels of vaccine. Yeah, it's 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 like a perfect storm because you have, you know, uh, and just to get back to Jenny McCarthy for one second, I, of course, like you too, I was like, should I delay my vaccines? But here's a sidebar to Jenny McCarthy. After all that vaccine, anti-vaccine, she went on Oprah. I mean, a lot of people gave her oh, yeah. a big platform. Well, Oprah gave her a massive platform. Yep. I'm not saying Oprah's complicit in where we are today. Well, 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 no. But she played we, a part. We did that. Yes, but... She had a part. She had a part to play. So like, years, like two years later, she was doing ads for vaping yeah which really i really i remember when that was coming out i'm like okay do you need to check that bad so but i think you're so right the damage had already been done and now i think we're seeing this perfect storm well and you're playing on people's fears i mean right you know when you're talking about your precious child and the whole idea that you're going to do something or you're going to make a decision that is going to result in this baby you know being forever harmed Playing on those fears, I mean, it, it's significant. 
And like Terry said, in terms of the grift, now it's become this multi-million, billion-dollar industry that really has some parents making decisions that are not in the best interest of their children and certainly not in the best interest of other children. And how does Jenny McCarthy just get away with it now? Like, I'm surprised nobody's like trying to interview her now. Well, you know, it, it had a, a, so many of the, the big voices in this movement get away with it. And what's, what's tricky and actually on point, that program NPR did a, had a great episode today all about the roots of sort of this movement. And because one of the, the leaders of the movement also is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Oh, yeah, who, he's the worst. You know, right out of the gate, he's mm-hmm. got a real big name that he is able to use. And that name comes with a level of credibility, whether or not it is deserved. And so when someone who doesn't know any better, you know, someone who is just trying to make the best decision for their child and they're scrolling through Facebook and they search for vaccines on Facebook, chances are they're going to find a lot of very professionally produced, very professional scientific looking information, you know, with, with his name attached to it. And, you know, you have and we've known this for a while with all kinds of things dealing with children. There is the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is like the actual real organization of pediatricians. And then there's another group, I forget what they're called. And even if I could remember it, I probably wouldn't give it airtime. But there's like like the shadow group of pedi- that, And they, they have a name that sounds official. It sounds real. But that's the organization that is cited all the time. And Jen, you probably got gotten emails about this too from folks who are, you know, concerned about, you know, transgender kids playing sports or, you know, you know, it, there, there's like this, it's like this play play group of pediatricians. Like it's not a real group. Of, it's a real group of pediatricians. They're real pediatricians, but it's not the American Academy of Pediatrics. But when you, you know, you see, if you're just a parent and you don't, most normal people don't keep up with the different names of the medical societies. You're like, oh, well, this pedi- group of pediatricians, they're saying not to do these vaccines and they're saying this and I need to look more about this. And then, you know, every, it's, you, then, then you're just going down a rabbit hole. And the way the algorithms work, particularly on Facebook, is that that rabbit hole is going to get narrower and narrower and deeper and deeper into this vaccine misinformation. Well, Terry, you've said a lot. And I, I don't know if I'm... I. I'm, I'm thankful for your activism for both of you and uh, keep it up. I love how you um, on Twitter call out kids for maybe being little shits. I'm into that. <laughs> who among us hasn't known a kid, even the ones we love the very most, who hasn't been a little shit at one point or another? The ones who we among love us the- has not been that little shit at one point or another. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Terry Nolowitz, uh, it's been so great uh, hearing from you, and we would love to hear from you again and uh, keep up the good fight. All right, I love Terry. She's a hoot. I mean, just sidebar, she may know more pop culture than I've ever seen. So if you follow her on Twitter, she'll she'll make these references. And I have no idea whatever she's talking about. But I do. Yeah, but you but you would. Well, it's like all this stuff. I'm like, oh, can we bring it to Jenny McCarthy? Because that's a level. But, but I liked how she was so receptive to that because it is true. It's like totally true. For people, perception is reality. You say it enough times. You see somebody famous. And that's getting back to the conversation about the governor and the things that can be done. If you said, hey opening day at the Georgia game, we're having a vaccine clinic. I mean, this isn't hard. 
No, I mean, there would be an easy way to do this, but, you know. Okay. All right. Um, let's not forget, for those of you with us still, Jen uh, Jordan is running for attorney general. That That is correct. In, still, still I In am. case you did not know, <laughs> uh, Jen is running for attorney general of the entire state of Georgia. That, and, that is correct. And I can't believe she does a podcast with me. But uh, so here's the thing. I want to ask an attorney general question. Tish James uh, made a lot of news with Andrew Cuomo and this announcement. The independence investigation found that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women, many of whom were young women, by engaging in unwanted groping, kisses, hugging, and by making inappropriate comments. Further, the governor and his senior team took actions to retaliate against at least one former employee for coming forward with her story, her truth. Governor Cuomo's administration fostered a toxic workplace that enabled harassment and created a hostile work environment where staffers did not feel comfortable coming forward with complaints about sexual harassment due to a climate of fear and given the power dynamics. Now, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I have a major lady crush on her. She's she's pretty incredible. I mean, it's the kind of person who walks into the room and you're just like, I don't even know if I can talk to him because you can tell. I mean, she's, she's, she knows what she's doing. So I, the first thing I tweeted out right away, I said, we need an attorney general who will right the wrongs. And that person is to Senator Jen. And I, I just, I thought it was amazing that someone who's a Democratic attorney general is willing to open this investigation and do the right thing with a Democratic governor. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people kind of in the political sphere were surprised that she actually came out the the way she did with respect to Governor Cuomo because they are in the same party, right? But I think she's showing that that's exactly what an attorney general should do. Attorney general, it shouldn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. I mean, if you see something that is wrong or bad, then you you need to do something about it. And it doesn't matter if it implicates people who have the same letter by their name um, in a partisan way. So big props there. I think a lot in the political world were surprised. And you know what? I think Cuomo needs to go. I love her so much. I I, I just, I don't know. I, I just, I'm, so because I wonder what's next for the Trump stuff because she's a viper, man. Well, I think it's important for context and legitimacy, too. Like, if anything does come out with the Trump stuff, I mean, it's it really is kind of an inoculation for her because you can't say that she's just a partisan. You sure can't. And um, so what was really interesting was watching conservative media. I have two points about conservative media, you know, really dissing Cuomo, which I mean, he's disgusting, garbage human and absolutely terrible. And there's no defending him. But the Democrats pretty much with the with the first round of complaints, pretty much disassociated with him then called on him to resign early on. But then now you've got everybody against him. You've got Biden. You've got Act 
it's blue. He can't raise any more money through that service. And you've got Republicans sort of celebrating it. And, uh, you know, and I'm just like, okay, what about Trump? What about Matt Gates? What about, I mean, the list goes on and on. I guess it was the same thing with Trump. And they're like, what about Clinton? So it's a, it's uncomfortable. Well, it's, it's hard because, you know, they're going to point to Cuomo, but I mean, you, what do they say about living in glass houses? Yeah, um, well, that's that. Okay. One final thing we want to, I want to mention Tamira Mensa Stock. She's an Olympic wrestler and she won the gold medal. We had a lot of gold medals. The Olympics are over. Thank God. They, the Olympics always feel like it's like a hundred years, but she won and she had this to say. Last question for you. That American flag around your shoulders looks pretty good. How does that feel to represent your country like this? It feels amazing. I love representing the U.S. I freaking love living there. I love it. And I'm so happy I get to represent U.S.A. <laughs> love it. Well, well said. Congratulations. Enjoy that gold. And we'll see you out there on the podium, okay? Thank you. I'll try not to cry, but no wrong. <laughs> Jen. I saw every conservative here in Georgia from Kelly Leffler to Latham Sadler, who's running for Senate, every single one of them all saying, what a proud American. She's so amazing. Oh, my God. America, America. Well, she's an immigrant. Her family's immigrants from Ghana. And she purposely wore her hair in the pom-poms to reflect her black hair. So it's funny to me how the, because she's got the flag, they, they love to think that, oh, oh, wow. Look, I, I mean, she just won a gold medal representing the United States in the Olympics. I mean, what an incredible moment for her. But to see kind of really politicians in this state try to politicize something that is so pure. I mean, you can hear in her voice the excitement. <laughs> yes. I mean, I would be doing the same thing. Of course. I would be like, I cannot believe that I'm here and that this has happened. And of course, they're going to try to to turn it into something, turn something so pure into something so political. And uh, I just and I, don't think we should take the bait. And I'm sure she doesn't want that, you know, and especially because she's a family of, of immigrants from Ghana, you know, so it's it's just, I don't know. Well, congratulations to her. Anything you want to announce today, uh, Jen? Uh, no, there's nothing. Well, we're going to have a lot to talk about. This was a good one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Jen's, Jen's running for attorney general. People are trying to call her and I'm talking her ear off. We'll talk to you next time.